G'day and welcome to the Doctor Who Show. I'm Rob. And I'm Dave. And you join us for our episode encompassing the whole of June. Dave, hello. Hello, how are you? A bit theatrical this afternoon for some reason, but uh, but very good otherwise. For people who are interested in this sort of thing, I'm still very much working from home. Yes, well, nothing has changed for me. I'm still doing three days at home, two days in the office. Uh, things are still much quieter. I've got sort of beyond that period where everybody discovered Zoom meetings and Zoom parties and suddenly my diary was briefly really full and now it's sort of gone back a bit. So a lot more reading, a lot more television, um, just a lot more kind of chilling and I'm, I'm as I said last time the time before very very grateful and very very aware that I'm lucky that I can just be chilling at this time yeah I've been taking advantage of it and we'll, we'll hear a bit more about that I guess when we get to mini topics now before we get on to some news Dave I guess we should mention what the topic of this uh, show will be as mentioned at the end of last episode you came up with the idea of uh, companions which span doctors Yes, so we're going to be looking at those companions that go across more than one Doctor and does it affect the character? Does it work better with one than the other? All that sort of thing. I've I've got some examples of ones where it really works and somewhere I don't think it does. So we'll be talking about that. Indeed. But before then, let's get into that news. We shall. So I'll kick us off with a piece here. Uh, And that is something that I guess we kind of knew was coming, but it's been confirmed. And that is that the next season of Doctor Who can't be made, quote, to the current standard at the moment. Now, this is coming from RTD. No, not that RTD, but (laughs) Rodri Taflin-Davies, the director of BBC Wales, who said on an online Q&A when asked about the future of Doctor Who, a production like that, which at any point employs hundreds of people, freelance and staff, I don't believe can be made to the current standard in a socially distanced environment. And as I said, Rob, I think we kind of knew that television and movie production would be affected by all this. You, you can't make mm. a TV program where everybody is 1.5 metres apart. <laughs> so You can try. Yeah, look, absolutely. But by the time you get to, you know, the hordes of makeup artists and costume people yeah. and special effects and lighting. Yeah, so look, I think we all knew that there were going to be delays to TV production coming. And it's official. Doctor Who is one of them now. How long and what it means, we don't know. But... At least the BBC's been honest and put that on the table. Yeah, I don't know. Is it really starting to bite at present? Because Chibnall had sort of kicked the can down the road and said, oh, the next series won't be for ages. And so at this stage, I'm sure they can be writing. I'm sure Chibnall can be emailing people and saying, look, write me this script and send me your drafts and all that. I'm sure all of that can be happening. And maybe that's all that would be happening at this stage. But indeed... It affects the production a lot more, I guess, as, as each month goes on. It does. And what's going to be very interesting is when the BBC reaches a time where things can go back into production again, does it just put Doctor Who back potentially into the slot it was always going to have? Or does it get pushed back because they want stuff that's been delayed right now to get a chance to go? Or are there going to be shows that should be in production right now that they're just told in six months' time, yeah, sorry, window's shut and we're not making you anymore? Yeah, and look, it may seem crazy to be talking about this, but how does this affect November of 2023 for the 60th anniversary? Because people are already starting to pull out their calendars and say, well, if we don't make this series until now, and then it doesn't screen until then, and then is that Jodie's last series? Does she leave with Chibnall? Maybe she does. Then a new showrunner's got to come in. How long do they have to make a series before the 60th? Is that even possible? People are already planning this out, Dave. It's happening on Twitter right now. 
Yeah, I guess you can imagine a series being broadcast in 2021, potentially, in, in which case there's plenty of time for a potentially new showrunner and Doctor in 2022. But you're right, if the show doesn't get aired until late 2021, maybe even early 2022, you're right, there does start to be a bit of a closing window there. It is interesting. But as you say, hopefully some of that pre-production, certainly the script writing is happening. Hmm. Yeah, I certainly hope so. Moving on, there's been a new Dalek design hit the internet. Have you seen this picture, Dave? Yeah, so look, Rob, I have seen this picture, but I haven't had the time to click on the article and read what it's all about. Is this for real? Pete, well, look, people think it might be. And I look at it and I think, well, that looks very well made. And I'm not saying that fan versions of Daleks can't be very well made. Fans make incredible versions of Daleks and R2-D2 and all sorts of things. They, they make them as good as the screen builders do. But there's just something about it. Uh, the way it's similar to the Junkyard Dalek in resolution, if the Junkyard Dalek had been built properly... I'm thinking, could this be a bit of a spy shot from the the Christmas special or the New Year's special, as it probably will be at the end of this year? I'm I'm leaning towards it being real, Dave. I'm leaning towards it not being real, Rob. Interesting. One of us will be wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Look, as I say, I don't know anything about it other than looking at the shots. And when I saw the shot for the first time, my gut instinct was, that doesn't work. But uh, that's Chibnall who, in a nutshell, Dave. A lot of things he does don't what doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, the reality is neither of us know. Uh, obviously, our guts have gone in different directions, and one of us will be right and one of us will be wrong. But it, 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 you're right, though. Like you, I did see that potential evolution from the Junkyard Dalek. Mm, exactly. So, yeah, look, I, I guess all I can say on it is let's see. And if listeners want to look it up, uh, I'm sure you'll find it very easily. Even Radio Times did a story about it with the, the picture in there. Yes. All right. Shall we move on to mini topics? Uh, so two from me this month, Rob, but none particularly heavy or controversial. Uh, as I said before, I've been watching a lot of television over the last couple of months. And in the last month, I've watched a lot of Doctor Who. Ooh, what have you been watching? Uh, so I started off just randomly watching Earthshock for no apparent reason. I just woke up one day and thought, when I get home tonight, I'm going to watch Earthshock. And I did, and it is so, so good. It, it is. is just a very, very watchable piece of Doctor Who, and I really enjoy it. Uh, and then, because a friend of the podcast, Mark Cockrum, has been asking on various bits of social media for comments on various Hartnell stories, I suddenly had this yearning to go and watch my favourite Doctor. So I've been putting on a bunch of Hartnell stories. I started with The Reign of Terror, and then I went to The Sensorites, and then The Rescue of the Romans, and then The Planet of Giants. And I've got to say, I've enjoyed them all. They were all just so lovely to sit back and watch. Um, I love that cast. I love that crew. There's so much imagination. Uh, Sensorites, I think that it does get better as it goes along. There's a lot of fun there. Reign of Terror, probably not quite as good as I remembered it, but Yeah, the other's really good. But I've got to say, Rob, I have discovered what I think is the lamest cliffhanger resolution in Doctor Who's history. Oh, tell me more. Uh, And that is the start of part two of Planet of Giants, where the cliffhanger resolution is literally the cat gets bored and walks away. (laughs) Yeah, that's up there. Yeah, and and it's funny because you know how you don't watch a Doctor Who story for a number of years and you, you remember the big beats, but... 
moments come along and go, oh, I don't remember how this this goes. And I was watching the cliffhanger at the end of part one with the giant cat, and I thought, I don't remember how they get out of this. Oh, okay, what happens? And then literally they say, oh, I think the cat's getting bored, and it walks away. And I thought, that's a very big cop-out. <laughs> very good. But yeah, yeah, it's been fun to watch Doctor Who, yeah. Yeah, I know a lot of people have been re-watching a lot of Doctor Who, you know, just based on our own Twitter feed. People throw up polls and say, look, here's three or four stories. What will I watch today? And you can actually vote on what they'll watch. It's quite fun. Yes, it is quite fun, yeah. Moving on, Davo Fest continues at my place with a lot of all creatures great and small. I'm up to season four now, which means I've obviously watched seasons one to three, but also vitally the 83 and 85 Christmas specials, Dave. Right. Now, were they broadcast here? Because I don't remember them at all. I think they were because, at least at the end of one of them, because I was watching till the end of the credits, it was made in conjunction with the ABC. Oh, well, there you go. It must have been. Yeah, sort of Five Doctors style. You know, I've got. I've just got to say on these, Dave, it's amazing how brutal some of the <laughs> episodes are. The through line of the 85 Christmas special, and it's not even Christmas in the episode, by the way. It's, it's just a Christmas special. They, they rescue a dog off the moors. This dog is sinking into the moors. So this, this is almost tragic to begin with. Then the dog gets a life-threatening skin disorder. And James is determined to cure it, even though it's almost impossible, Siegfried tells him. By the way, in this 85 Christmas special, Siegfried has a sort of a porn star moustache. It's quite weird. Uh, but getting <laughs> back to... It's true. Getting back to the plot, James cures the dog and he and the family get out and they have fun with the dog and he throws the ball and... Uh, it's all wonderful then the dog runs away and eats some poison and james nurses it for a day or two then siegfried has to have the talk and tell him he's too attached and he has to do the right thing and he goes out at like 3 a.m and he euthanizes the dog and helen's watching out the window as he carries this dog in his arms off to bury it he's in his pajamas but he's off to bury it and it's absolutely traumatic thought this was christmas viewing in 1985 it is one thing that i do recall about the show and and certainly the couple of episodes i've dipped into over the years they don't hold back from the realities of being vets in a you know very poor remote farming community do they that's that's right and that's what the books are like too i mean they're quite funny they're very funny as well but they they don't shy away from it, and it's just I, it just made me laugh though that this was you know seasonal viewing. <laughs> let's let's all sit down and watch the Christmas special, and then that happens. And God, the end of season three, Dave, when they all go off to war, my wife was listening from another room, and even she could tell how traumatic it was. She sort of came in after it was over and said, "Well, that was pretty heavy," and it it really was. It really affected me more than just about any other episode. Yeah, as I said last month, I think those are the episodes where there are images and moments that still sit really really back deep in the memory for me and that I didn't really quite understand the historical significance of and the context of when I saw them at the age of sort of eight nine ten whatever mm. but but even as a kid you kind of understand the gravity of the moment and it, it sits with you oh it does I mean the, the timing gets a bit off it in places like they're listening to the radio and war is declared and then it seems the next day they're saying oh orphans are coming from london and i'm like really <laughs> i don't think it happened that fast uh no yes no um anyway. is you're getting into season four is this getting to the time when davo was uh less in it 
Yeah, I believe season four will have uh, Callum, the yeah. character Callum in there, and Davo maybe might pop up, but then he's gone for a while. Yeah. Does it still count as Davo Watch then? I'm that into it now. I'm like about 40 episodes in, you know, another <laughs> 40 to go. Yep. <laughs> you know, I'm just going to power through. Uh, fair enough. Uh, speaking of other shows we're watching, I mentioned last month that I was doing a bit of a Babylon 5 rewatch, and I still am, although I haven't got a lot further because I've been watching Doctor Who. Um, and, and some new shows on Netflix as well, which came out in June. Mm. Um, but one of the things that I have been doing whilst re-watching Babylon 5 is going back to a website called The Lurker's Guide, which oh, was... yes. You may remember. That. Yeah, yeah. So it was one of the very early websites, in fact, and certainly around television. But one of the things that this site did is on each of the pages for the episodes, they would archive there all the various comments that JMS, the um, J. Michael Straczynski, the creator, or showrunner, would put on various different forums when he was engaging with fans. Mm. So you can see there it's got, you know, episode starts with, hey, people, we've just finished making episode five and I can't tell you anything more, but you're really going to love this one. Or, hey, just letting you know that Walter Koenig is confirmed he's going to come back for episode 10 of next series. It's going to be really good. And then it goes through all of his responses to questions, you know, why did you do this? What was happening here? What was cut here? And that's been really fascinating to watch. But what's really interesting is reading these comments in the context now of all of the stuff that we've seen in fandom regarding Doctor Who and the way that Doctor Who's listed from them. And if I could give you an example here, Rob. Yeah, please. Of something that I think um, has come up in Doctor Who fandom a lot, particularly with the way that the show is structured. So this is JMS writing about an episode at the start of season three. I get this at the start of every season. Let me repeat what I've said, oh, about two dozen times already before. At the start of every season, we have new people sampling the show. Do you want the show to continue? If you do, then you have to continue to add new viewers. If viewers tune in and they're lost in the overall arc, they're going to tune out again. Mm. So you give them some standalone episodes in the beginning, shows that are a little bit more accessible, but introduce them to the characters, the situations, and the universe, so that when the arc begins to move again, they know enough to get what's going on. And this goes on, but I just thought, how often have we had this conversation about new seasons of Doctor Who where people say, oh, we left on such a big bang last time and now we've got these really wishy-washy soft episodes to start and, oh, there's no arc stuff in this time. And then you wait a few episodes and it's like, mm-hmm. hang on, no, there's, there's stuff coming later and they've built the audience. And then you look at other seasons where you sort of go, wow, this was a lot for an audience member to take in if this is their first episode. And maybe then the ratings don't take off that well that season. So there's lots of other examples, but I just thought it was really interesting to hear JMS writing about another series that I felt so many echoes about Doctor Who. Yeah, and I'll just say about that Lurker's Guide and JMS on the internet in general, he was prolific, like out there on Usenet news groups and things like that. I mean, he... um, Well, I mean, recently he tweeted about us, Dave, and that was quite fun. But back in the day, back when I was at university, I asked a question on some forum or other some Usenet group, and, and he replied. And I just think, gosh, the way people would gather information in those days, like every little comment from him would be grabbed and put in the Lurker's Guide and other places, it was actually superior probably to how information is captured now because people talk in articles all the time and, and little comments are here and there and everywhere, but they're not collected with the same sort of 
I don't know what it is. A, a, just a really fierce, keen eye in the fandom just to make these websites that have all the information on them. I, I don't see it happening. You know, there are great fan sites out there for all sorts of shows, but I don't see it in the same sort of almost obsessive-compulsive way that it used to happen in, like, the, the mid-90s. No, but there also was this kind of perfect window in the late 90s where there was enough of a critical mass online that this was a worthwhile endeavour by somebody like JMS, but mm. not so many people online that he would just be swamped. If he, you know, if he, you could imagine if Chibnall or, or Moffat or whatever started posting responses to a Doctor Who forum, you know, it, it would just be swamped. You know, they, they would post one comment and get a thousand replies and could never really keep up with it and probably get smashed by a whole lot of naysayers as well. Oh yeah, it was definitely a more respectful time. I remember that. There, there were people who'd say they didn't like episodes and, you know, this, that and the other, but not the same level of online hate. Like, if I don't like something, then I must hate it, which seems to be what people do now. There's, there's no sort of middle ground. You either must love it or you must hate it. You can't be in between. That's right. And it is funny occasionally just reading some of the archive comments of JMS kind of shooting down fans or kind of pointing out the absurdity of some fans' concepts. And, and I do like occasionally something will pop up where someone's posted, that was a really funny joke in last night's episode. Who wrote that? And JMS would just say, the writer. Who do you think? <laughs> yeah, he's a pretty smart dude um, and has a way with words. Yes. And if you don't follow him on Twitter, I do encourage you to because he's very good there, I must say. Yeah, he is. All right, Dave, that brings us to the main topic. Would you like to explain your concept? Uh, basically, it's pretty straightforward. We're looking at when Doctor Eras change, but companions don't. Or in a couple of cases, when companions do, and we'll talk about that briefly as well. But we're asking the question, do the companions work better or worse with different Doctors? Do they change with different Doctors? Should they have stayed? Should they have gone? It's going to vary for each one. But mm. yeah, I just think it's a... It's a part of the show we don't talk about. We talk about the regenerations often as fans, and we, we have on our podcast. We've done whole episodes on final stories, first stories, regeneration stories. Mm. But we don't look at always at the companions that bridge those gaps, and I thought that would be interesting to do. Yeah, and, and I concur. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to ripping in. Should we toss a coin to see who goes first on this first one? Uh, okay, let's go. Okay. So, Dave, heads or tails? Heads, please. Okay, tossing the coin and bring it around here. It's heads. Okay, well, I guess I'm kicking us off then. Please. So, the first changeover that I guess we're looking at, very obviously, is the first Doctor to the second, with Ben and Polly being the bridging companions. What's very interesting here, I think, and most important, is that they are very much used in this first regeneration to bridge the audience across and indeed having the two companions there does play that role of Ben gets to be the cynical one saying I don't know if that's still the Doctor and mm. Polly gets to be the loyal one who says no Ben it's got to be the Doctor and eventually as Polly brings Ben around the audience is also brought around as well yeah yeah absolutely and they are a great bridge in that respect i got to thinking about that scene in an adventure in time and space where hartnell is photographed welcoming each new companion and they're sort of posing outside the bbc and having champagne and it sort of goes through companion after companion he starts to seem disenchanted with it all and as the viewer i think we're meant to feel that oh yeah 
maybe the companions were sort of moving away from the Susans and Vickies that sort of worked well. And as time went on and as Hartnell was walking out the door, his companions maybe weren't a great fit. I agree that they bridged the gap very well, but I think they're much better with the doctor they go to than the one they're leaving behind. Yeah, it was really interesting when I was thinking about this earlier. We do very much think of them only having a very brief stay with the first doctor, and in some ways that's true, but they do have 12 episodes with him, which Mm. is, for the UK viewers, would have been three months. Yes. So they would have been there a while, but it's interesting. I think you're right, Rob. I don't think they ever quite feel at home with the first Doctor in the same way they do with the second. No, no, not at all. Uh, I, I do think they go wonderfully with the second Doctor. That said, I've never particularly cared for Ben as a character, but Polly, I think, is marvellous. She's my best female companion of the 60s, hands down. But together with Pat, they both make a lot of sense. Obviously, Jamie sort of disrupts that And although I think Jamie and Polly would have been a good team, that was never on the cards. She was always going to leave with Ben. Yeah, and I think that Jamie does take on that male companion role in the Troughton era, and Ben does kind of get squeezed out a bit there. But it is interesting that in this first bridge, although they've been cast to work with Hartnell, they do, I think I agree, work better with Troughton. Yeah, oh, without doubt. Now, moving on to Pat Troughton turning into John Pertwee, no one joins the Pert. He pops out of the TARDIS alone. Yeah, that's right. And I think what's interesting here is that, in this case, the leaving time of the Companions was dictated by the change of Doctor, in that, I think, as most fans know, Fraser Hines was going to leave early in Season 6. Then when Troughton said he was going at the end of the season, Fraser said, oh, well, hang on, I'll, I'll stay and I'll leave with you. I think that'd be nice. And Wendy Padbury at that point, I remember her talking about this at a convention she did here maybe eight, nine years ago. She mm. said, well, hang on, if you guys are going, I'm going, because I don't want to be the only one hanging around if the rest of the team's going. And then when she found out John Pertwee was going to be the new Doctor, she said, oh, look, I'm definitely going there. Not because she had a problem with Pertwee, but she said, John Pertwee's six foot something, I'm five <laughs> foot not much. How are they ever going to do a two-shot with us? How's it ever going to work? It's going to be completely ridiculous. I worked with Pat where we're just the right heights and, and builds that Pat can kind of put his arm around me and it's a perfect shot. That mm. can't happen with John Pertwee. It's not going to work. You're leaving. And so Wendy Padbury chose not to bridge a doctor because of the change of doctor. And what's ironic there, Dave, is, you know, she's the big brain boffin. Pertwee's first companion is a big brain boffin. That's right. <laughs> yes. So I think that they would have been very happy to keep Zoe around in some form. I think, I think it could have worked, you know. I mean, I, I, I get what she's saying about the height thing, and that might be something she invented over the years, perhaps. Maybe it is a little bit... Um, <laughs> Embellished. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But um, it's an interesting thought. Yeah, yeah. But broadly, you know, Pertwee with, with a smart companion could absolutely work, at least for one season. Absolutely. But then he gets Joe Grant, and that, that dynamic of the Doctor and the girl is kind of laid in there. It, it It's interesting to think about it just in a, as an aside drop. The Doctor had a male companion uninterrupted for the first six years. Mm. Yeah. Now, moving on, we've got Sarah Jane Smith joining the Tom Baker Doctor. This is so similar to Ben and Polly to me because I think Liz is much better with Tom. And maybe, I was thinking about this, maybe it's because we saw more of them together in general. Uh, maybe it's a bit 
because Pertwee was more clapped out towards the end, whereas Tom was just hitting the ground with all cylinders blazing, and so it was a much more dynamic sort of pairing. I don't really know. I, I haven't formalised that view yet, but she's unquestionably better with Tom, I think, and it really makes her a Tom companion, even though she did some notable stuff with Pertwee in his final series. So this was one of the examples that I think really sparked the idea of the topic. And what I'm going to say is that, Rob, I do agree with you. I think that Sarah Jane and Tom are very, very good together. But she's almost a completely different companion and a very different character when Mm -hmm. the Doctor changes. Because if you think about Sarah in season 11, she is very much the journalist, the working girl... In The Time Warrior, she rocks up because she's doing journalist work. Invasion of the Dinosaur, she's all about, can I get photographs of my article? Planet of the Spiders, she's actually not the Doctor's companion. She's gone off to do some journalist work and then comes to them, hey, guess what I discovered while I was working on a story? And indeed, that continues in Robot. Um, She's got the shorter hair. She's often wearing the slacks or or the trousers. A very particular sort of character. Then once you get into the Tommy and the Doctor leaves at the end of Robot with Sarah and Harry... She hardly ever mentions being a journalist again. There's a passing moment where she does some typewriting in the Terror of the Zygons. And there's a very... There's one line in in Android Invasion where she says, oh, I came here on a story. But Mm. otherwise, she's not a journalist anymore. She doesn't do that. She's very much the person who travels with the Doctor. Completely different haircut, completely different style of wardrobe. I think a lighter sort of personality that, that does match better with Tom's sort of more ebullient personality. So I kind of just ask, you know, is she a different character between Doctors? Does does that Doctor change change Sarah Jane? That, that's really interesting because although I'm, I'm not going to toss my ideas out because I, I do think we saw more of them together, I do think Tom was more ebullient and all oh, of that. For sure, absolutely. But what you're saying, I think, is, is the cherry on top. Yeah, she, she actually is remarkably different now that I think about it. You're quite right. Yeah, so I don't know if that's for better or worse. Well, I guess it is for better. I think um, it's better. And, and, and what's really interesting is that at the time that Liz Sladen was cast to be Sarah Jane Smith, John Purby had no intention of leaving the role. The, the assumption was that he could continue for as long as he wanted. Now, we all know circumstances changed, and in the middle of season 11, he decided that would be his last. So Liz Sladen was cast to be John Purby's companion, and it really is just dumb luck that her and Tom Baker work so, so well together. Well, they're both Liverpudlians, aren't they? I mean, neither of them has the accent, but I think, I think I'm right in saying that. That is right, Liverpudlian. yes. Liverpudlian, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there was some, uh, some shared background there as well. Yeah. Shall I take us on to the bridge between Tom and Davo? Please. Now, there's a lot to say here, <laughs> because this is perhaps the first time that a producer has really sat down and tried to craft the companions over the bridge between Doctors because, as I'm sure fans all know, JNT knew that Tom Breaker leaving after seven years and just stamping his personality on the show so much, mm. the audience would, would, would struggle perhaps to adopt the new Doctor. So Tegan and Nyssa are brought in to be bridging characters across across the transition and, and, and really are designed to work with Davo in a way that other companions weren't designed to work with any doctors and we'll talk about them in a moment but it does also have Adric who was designed to work with Tom Baker and I've said before and I'm standing by this going back Mm -hmm. and thinking about it now Adric and Tom together 
really works so, so well. There's that mentoring feel, that benevolent uncle feel, that wide-eyed young person with a mentor feel that works really well, particularly in stuff like Keeper of Trike and Legopolis. Yes. And just does not work with Davo. Davo isn't the right look or age or personality to be a mentor. And, and kind of he just becomes an older brother, which means that Adric kind of becomes the irritating younger brother, and that dynamic's kind of awful. <laughs> Look, you're quite right. Before we go back to Adric, though, Nissa was Nissa originally meant to be a companion? I, I have this in my head that she she was just very good, so they thought, oh, we'll keep her as well. Yeah, I think Joan T was on the lookout for someone to carry across, and yes, they decided at the last moment that um, Sarah Sutton would, yes. Because this, I mean, we, we talk about this on the show all the time. This is the, the big problem, taking these three companions across and having this sort of pseudo Hartnell-esque era in the 80s with Davo, you know, trying to find things to do for his three companions. Yeah, and I kind of wonder if the show was doing this now, where there's a lot more flexibility to just bring in people for a little bit, wouldn't this sort of just come in for Trark and Legopolis, Castrovalva, and maybe be written out in Castrovalva or Fort of Doomsday and just, just be that bridging character? Well, look, they, they can be, although obviously when you get to the Whitaker era, we're, we're lumbered again with three companions and we're lumbered again with huge guest casts and no one has enough time to do anything. It's, it's like they haven't learned or, or don't realise that someone could come in and be a companion for two or three episodes. You know, it's, it's very strange. It is. Uh, do you think that Nissa works better or worse with Tom and Davo, or is it hard to really tell? Uh, Nissa, I think, can get along with either of those doctors. Yeah. Because I think she's just that personality who, who can do that. Tegan, though, I think is undoubtedly better with Davo because he's the softer touch and she can yell and scream and he'll take it and, you know, and, and, and then snap back with some sort of remark. Whereas I think with Tom, it just would have been like... <laughs> oil and water from the start <laughs> I'm, I'm just imagining now uh tegan having some of her little tantrums at the fourth doctor and and in that sort of tom baker voice just well get them out of the tardis then <laughs> yeah she would not have gone long term with the fourth doctor that's for sure and look i do agree with you adric and tom yes works much better with as characters obviously as real life people they didn't work together well at all but as the characters yes big tick yeah, and do you think that having those characters actually does what J&T wanted and does bridge the gap for the audience? I, I think it does because of the nature of Davo's first story. In, in Castrovalva, they, the companions are sort of doing all the stuff while the Doctor's sitting in his little Zero cabinet and all of that before he sort of comes alive, so to speak. But I don't know if that's... I don't know what came first, the chicken or the egg in this respect. Did they write that because they had all those companions or was it the plan all along? Yeah, and I do kind of wonder if it gave them a bit of an out or maybe a bit of a cheat that didn't work so well in that because they can allow Nyssa and Tegan to carry the story for the first two and a half, three episodes, the Doctor isn't in the first two and a half, three episodes nearly enough. And maybe that's to his detriment. And that's something I think we will revisit when we get to Matt Smith, I think. Yeah, good point. Well, look, let's let's move on then. Uh, this is one I'll take lead on. Perry joining Colin Baker's Sixth Doctor. Now, I think this is probably the companion change 
I, or crossover as we're calling it, that I most regret on this whole list. Because I think the occasionally, occasionally sassy, you know, pretend sort of American that Perry is, is a really good fit for Davo. And I think they could have done really good stuff together. And yes, I know there are audios where they're together, but I'm talking back in the day, Peter and Nicola for a season. I think it could have been really good, Dave. And I think Perry joining the Sixth Doctor, not even getting into the fact he throttles her and how just bloody awful that is and, and all of that, but their first season together is just... It's, it's more along the lines of maybe what Tegan and Tom might have been like, perhaps. Uh, even though I'm, I'm not saying that Perry is like Tegan by any means, but you know what I mean, that sort of just spikiness almost and it's just uncomfortable and you wonder why she's staying with the guy it's very strange it's interesting you say that because i don't disagree with anything you've said there but this was one of the most planned transitions that we had in the show where jnt literally had up on his whiteboard okay across the course of this season that story tegan leaves that story turlo leaves and perry comes in that story the doctor regenerates and he knew he had to transition his whole tardis team across about four stories there and so nicola was cast to be colin's companion and it's just the opposite of dumb luck i guess that the rapport that she has with davo i think is better but that said at least there's a strong personality ready and waiting for colin to arrive Mm, yeah, I don't know. Uh, look, the Fifth Doctor and Perry together, this this might sound weird, but go with me. It's almost a romantic sort of thing. Uh, I know there was no hanky-panky in the TARDIS in the 80s. JNT was famous for saying that. And I, and I don't think the Davo Doctor was played in a particularly um, boyfriend kind of way. But it still comes across so strongly like that. I think the two of them getting around would have given us a almost a precursor to New Who in some ways with the way those two would have acted with each other. I think Davo's relative youth and hers, they just would have looked... Well, they did look so good together, but they could have done so much more. No, I think you're quite right there. I mean, D- Davison is, for the first time, cast as a young, handsome, leading role-type actor, and Nicola Bright is a beautiful woman, probably. So I think that <laughs> I think that you're absolutely right. You, you can't help but feel that there's that romantic lead actor and actress setup that we're kind of trained as TV viewers to look out for and react well to because half mm. the shows on TV are attractive male and female actor and actress leads and usually in some sort of romantic coupling, either as a romantic couple or will they, won't they, whatever the setup, we're, we're trained to see that and, and like that. And you're right, I think that is a natural thing for our, us to see. Yeah, and I think stretched across a whole season, particularly with the number of episodes they're making in those days. Oh, Dave, what could have been? What could have been? <laughs> yeah, look, I, I think I don't know anyone in fandom that wouldn't love to have seen a series of Davo Perry. I think that's a, you know, if, if most people ask what could you change about the series, somewhere on their top five would be a season of Dave Owen Perry. Yeah, I blame Pat Troughton. That's true. He's the one who told him only do do a thirty. I blame I blame the people who wrote the scripts for season twenty and had Dave go. I'm not doing four years of this. Um, <laughs> which, which, as we've said before, had he had the scripts for season twenty been like the scripts for season twenty one, he said he would have done a fourth year because. He thought they were really kicking goals in his third season, but alas. 
Yeah, it's really sad. As a, as a big Davo fan, it's particularly <laughs> sad for me. I'll keep us going then. You just described then, Rob, what you think is your most disappointing crossover. And I'm going to introduce us now to what I actually have as my most disappointing crossover. Ooh. And that is Mel joining the Seventh Doctor. And I say that because this is one example where we've talked about dumb luck and the opposite of dumb luck and all the rest of it. This is incredibly bad black luck in that everybody assumed that Colin was doing a third series. Mm. Colin did, JNT did, Bonnie Langford did. Everybody thought that's what was going to happen. Nobody knew that Colin was going to get sacked in the season break. And Bonnie Langford was clearly cast, written, designed to be what I think she is, which is the perfect foil for the sixth doctor. Uh, she's got that real big, loud personality that is in some ways equal to Collins, but also in that sort of lighter fairy-esque, sort of pixie-esque personality, the opposite of Collins. And that dynamic works really well. Um, Collins, this big sort of man of action, and Bonnie's the one who's getting him to eat carrot juice and exercise. And, 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 and really, there's, there's a nice balance between them and a nice mutual respect between them that... I think would have been wonderful to see more of. And then suddenly Colin sacked, we get McCoy in, and I just don't think that dynamic ever quite works. I think it's a, it's a stage thing, Dave. And I know Sylvester McCoy was a stage actor too, but I think the Colin Baker style of stage acting and the Bonnie Langford style kind of mesh better together. Does absolutely. that make sense? You know, absolutely. They're both big theatre, pantomime, I am an actor-type mm. personalities. And, and yeah, they, they do complement each other, and they're on the same level. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I was actually, to be completely honest, I was a bit undecided on this one, because I think Bonnie is all right, even decent at times, with Sylve. But on balance, I, I noted here that I think she's probably better with Colin. She has that bizarre introduction where we're looking at a story from the future, and then her self from the future starts adventuring with the doctor in the present and all that sort of weird sort of stuff and and they're just not very long together because we've already seen her big story with him in vervoids um then we get that little two-parter and then and then that's it for colin you know so it's even though we only get that i still say they're better together though yeah look that's right i think it's very telling that in my opinion bonnie langford's best story certainly with the seventh doctor is dealt from the Bannerman, where she actually gets to go off and kind of have her own part of the plot in a lot, in many ways. She's very independent. She's the one that befriends Delta, whereas Sylvester gets to go off with um, with Ray and kind of have a separate adventure with a, a substitute companion. And, and I think that's very, very telling. And the final point I guess I'll make is just on that one about dynamics. And you're right. Bonnie and Colin are big, big actors. And Sylvester is at his best when... When he's doing the evil, evil from the dawn of time, very quiet, very dark, and then you've got Bonnie coming in, and they, they just don't compliment each other. It's not not a slight on either of them, but she was cast to be Collins offsider, and McCoy is just such a different Doctor. Completely agree on that one. Now moving on to the McGann Doctor, this is uh, similar to Pertwee. Uh, no one joins with uh, the poor McGann Doctor. No, and I guess no one really could it would have been very hard to have ace coming back or potentially to start him with a companion then you've got to introduce all of them what i will sort of mention though is i remember the 
scramble at the time of the various other bits of Doctor Who media to make sure that Ace was written out. She was written out finally and forever from the new adventures. And mm. indeed, they wrote the other companions out as well. But even the Doctor Who magazine comic felt it very important to have the story that wrote Ace out of their comics. And in fact, for those who aren't aware, spoilers for 24 years ago, <laughs> they actually kill Ace off. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's okay to have spoilers. I gave spoilers for a 35-year-old all-creature special, Dave, so <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> that's, that's good. That's good. But yes, Paul McCann doesn't arrive in the TARDIS with no companion and leaves with no companion. Yeah, which which really surprised me at the time because it was it was all leading up to that. They have the kiss at the time. I was like, oh my God, Doctor Who, what are you doing? But then he didn't leave with her. And I thought, what's all that about? That, ooh, that was interesting. Uh, I remember sort of ending that episode at the time on a reel. Oh, that was that was new. That was different. Yeah, because all the pre-publicity was all about how Grace was going to be the Doctor's companion. And Daphne Ashbrook had been cast as the Doctor Who girl and all of that sort of thing. And I wonder whether it was the production team leaving open the possibility that if the pilot went to series... If they wanted to recast with a new companion, they could. If yeah. they wanted to, the Doctor could just pop back to San Francisco and say, hey, Grace, let's have a second adventure, and this time you will come along. Um, or were they just planning that Daphne Ashbrook was just a one-off? Yeah, I don't know the answer to that, but it, it created a very interesting end to the episode. It did, it did. And perhaps mm. part of the reason why the McGann movie sometimes just doesn't quite feel like Doctor Who, that... The lack of a companion maybe doesn't help there. It really doesn't. And that kind of US look to the, the, the filming. You just know it's US television. It just, it just doesn't yeah, look like UK TV. No, that is true. That is true. But we then move into the new series. And once again, the Doctor arrives with no companion. Rob, good idea or bad idea for Christopher Eccleston's first story? I think it was a fantastic idea, Dave. Just like it sort of looked at the... Well, we assume it looked at the TV... Fans make this stuff up all the time, but let's go with it. We assume they looked at the TV movie and thought, you know what, layering on all this backstory for the first half an hour, not a good idea. Even though there wasn't a carryover companion, there was so much more crap being thrown on the screen. It was great that, you know, Eccleston just walked on. Here he is, he's the Doctor. Grabs Rose's hand, run... Um, we get that look in the mirror, you know, ooh, look at my ears kind of thing. It's the perfect way to do it. And I think in a reboot after so long, it would have been... I, I don't see how they could have really started it with a companion. No, I think it is really important to the success of that episode and that series that we meet Rose first, we work out who Rose is. Rose is just an ordinary person like us. And then she meets the Doctor and she learns who the Doctor is and she gets involved with the Doctor and... It's not difficult television. It's pretty pretty straightforward stuff. It's kind of what Ian and Barbara did all the way back in 1963. As they get into the Doctor and learn about him, so does the audience. Yeah, yeah, completely agree there. Which takes us on to the Tenant Doctor, and Rose is still around. Rose, well, it's only been one season, I guess. Of course she's still around. Uh, Rose joins Dave. Yes, so we have our first Doctor leave, but a companion bridging across it, and I don't like it. <laughs> Ooh, we're going to clash on this one. Um, I, I don't think that Rose works remotely well with David Tennant's Doctor. I think that with Eccleston and Rose, there was a, uh, 
a dynamic that did lean more towards the mentor and Telemachus type relationship and that I think that is very very strong I think Doctor Who does that well with Tennant and Rose there isn't that and it does verge on much more of a two mates just mating around on television Mm -hmm. and I do think that Billy Piper plays big off Tennant which encourages him to play big Mm -hmm. and that doesn't work for me you said you were going to disagree with me rob i'm waiting oh big time dave big time uh, <laughs> <laughs> our listeners have been waiting for this moment we've been agreeing on too much <laughs> it's time to it's time to disagree this is an unpopular opinion i i know what i'm about to say is unpopular amongst fandom because i think most people would probably go along with you i like rose and the tenant doctor i think them getting more we're the best, you know, and as you call it, two mates palling around. I think that is so realistic. I've I've been in that relationship before, and it it never lasts, and it becomes tragic, and it's avoidable, but it's a very human thing to be in. You get swept up in something, and you think each other, you know, you think each other is amazing, and and you don't see it until later because you aren't consciously walking around thinking hey let's go into this room and be the smartest and and the prettiest and the funniest and give everyone else the you know because we just laugh at each other's jokes all the time and you know just have this little impenetrable shield that no one else can be inside later on you see it and you think yeah that wasn't so good but i find it super realistic and super relatable that two people could behave like that and obviously it's something that happens over time with with rose and the 10th doctor it doesn't happen in their very first episode but i think the way their relationship goes is very realistic and i actually like it I totally disagree with you, and <laughs> and by the by the pre credits or is it maybe the first scene of Tooth and Claw where they're just stuffing around with Queen Victoria to to use the description once applied to the Channel Nine cricket team acting like the mateiest mates who ever mated on television. <laughs> I, I just I, I I just was annoyed by them. So look, we disagree there. But, but I would, I would do it, Dave. I would do it if I was in Tennant's shoes with Queen Victoria. That's probably how I would act. So I'm like, yeah, I get this. Sure, but what's more important, realism or watchability? Ooh, well, to me, the realism makes it watchable. If I can fudge it that yeah, way. Okay. Well, look, I mean, you know, we're clearly coming at that from two different places, so that's that, that's fair enough. I'm not not going to agree. Neither of you. That's fine. No. Um, but but let me ask the question. Yeah. We just said a moment ago that Rose is the viewer's in to meeting Christopher Eccleston. Is it fair to say that in The Christmas Invasion, she is again the audience in to learning what regeneration is, learning what the new Doctor is, and discovering him? Very much so. I'm glad you brought it up because we sort of went off on a tangent there. Uh, yes, of course, because similar to Castrovalva, the Doctor's sort of out of action for a lot of the episode, and the companion is carrying it. There's not three of them this time. Well, I guess if you call Jackie a companion and maybe Mickey, maybe there are three of them, mm. now that I think of it. <laughs> yeah, there, there is that Who family of regulars, or semi-regulars, whatever you want to call them, that do kind of have the conversation about what's happened. How can he be the same person? Is he still the same person? Do I still like this guy? Which I guess there would be a lot of members of the audience who hadn't watched the classic season and they're going, hang, hang on, you've just 
recast the lead. How does that work? Mm. Yeah, after only one one season, of course. Yeah, yeah. So whether or not you think it works afterwards, I mean, yeah, we we disagree. Um, credit to Rose for really in that first two seasons, I guess, just being a very effective audience in to the universe. Absolutely. Which brings us to the Smith Doctor, and you were saying earlier that you you have some real thoughts in this area because again, no one joins with with Smithy. No, so to me, he's very much the opposite of Davison, and that is that in this case, you've got a soft reboot of the show. For the first time in the new series, the showrunner has changed. Uh, RTD has made the, I think, appropriate call that at the end of his time as the Doctor, he will have locked off everything. He will have written out his Doctor, written out his companions, written out his supporting characters. They all get neatly put in a little box and put away, and Mm. Moffat gets a clean slate. And I think that's really important. And I think that what's important here is that Smith is given time to be introduced as the Doctor, and then he introduces us to a companion. That means that he actually gets to establish himself in a stronger way than I think Dave was allowed to, both being very young actors to come in and play the role that Mm. I suspect a lot of the audience would have had some doubts about. And I think Smith did need that extra time to really stamp himself on the role rather than have the story be about a companion and then introduce him in. Yeah, I had massive doubts when Smith was cast. I've got to say, <laughs> I thought, what the bloody hell is Doctor Who doing? We've had a, a youngish sort of Doctor, but surely it's now time to have some, you know, grey-haired old bloke. Probably something like a Capaldi is what I was looking for after Tennant. But he wasn't. And you're right, it does help him in a in a big way. I think, though, that what also helps him is just that first episode, The 11th Hour. It's just so well written. You know, you go back to it now. It's one of... Should I say it's one? It's the best? No, it's at least one of the best intro stories for a Doctor, I think, in, in the whole series. I, I think it's an extraordinary little sort of first story. Yeah, I, I'm, I think it's good. I, I don't think it's all that, but I think it's fine. Um, but Are there many that you'd put in front of it? Christmas Invasion, Rose, yeah, after that, maybe not. Or Spearhead. Oh, well, if we're going back to classics, yeah, Spearhead. There's heaps I'll put in front of it, um, <laughs> if I was perfectly honest. Um, not the Twin Dilemma, though. No. Um, or, t- or Time in the Rani. Um, no. So it's maybe in the middle of the pile somewhere. But, but, but it's really interesting, though. Smith is given some really doctorish moments, like overt... Almost, in my mind, kind of like almost a little bit gauche Doctor Who moments. Like, hey, let's have you meeting Custard and Fish Fingers. How Doctor Who and wacky is that? And I know mm. that there are a lot of people who came in with Tennant for whom that was a signal to absolutely go, hey, this is this is your guy. And it does mean that that episode is about the Doctor less than it is about Amy, which is unusual, but I think the right choice for Smithy. And, and what's interesting, though, is Amy still has a clear story in that, being the little girl who gets left behind and she's made these little, you know, figurines of the Doctor and drawings and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, she does was, still have a, bit, a story. It was a bit creepy, though. Well, look, it, 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 it is creepy, and then she tries to have sex with him an episode or two later, but we won't go there. No, that's not what we're talking about this month. <laughs> next month sex in the tardis no um yeah look smithy yeah a great intro i'm i'm happy that he didn't have a follow over companion i think 
Yeah, you're quite right. It's it's the it's the change in era. I don't think it would have suited it at all. Yeah. Yeah, that's the big one for me. But Moffat's first changeover. Do you want to take us through that, Rob? Yes. Now, this is Clara, obviously, joining with the Capaldi 12th Doctor. I found this very bizarre because you had the Smith Doctor having to call her and explain why he's different, even though if any companion should have been well across the fact he's been all sorts of different people, it should be her, the one who's gone through his whole time stream. I just found that... I mean, it was a, it was a nice moment, like, oh, you know, have I got old? You know, what do I look like? You know, he'll, he'll need help. All that stuff he was saying was nice, but I thought it was a very bizarre sort of way to introduce this character. I thought she should have known that about him. I did like the no-hugging thing, though. Although Moffat sort of took that a bit far with this doctor trying to be so alien, he didn't know, oh, God, what, what was it when she would be wearing makeup or very basic stuff, and we were meant to think, oh, look, he's so alien with her. Look at that. But it was always stuff that a blind idiot wouldn't notice. So I, I didn't like that aspect of how these two sort of came together. Towards the end, though, it got better. That that scene in the diner where he's playing her theme on the guitar but doesn't know who she is when he's having the conversation with her, that's very sad. It's very affecting. She comes back in the final episode in that terrible green screen moment, Dave. That's actually not too bad. She says some nice stuff there. But there's a lot I dislike about Clara and the Capaldi Doctor in general. Might be to do a bit with how they treated her character as well. I've spoken for so long. I'm waffling, I know, but... Mm, I'm not too happy with, with Clara coming on for Capaldi. I, I think if she had to come on, she should have left at the end of his first season. I, I think there was better companions to come, like Bill Potts. So I'm broadly going to agree with you, and I actually had some very similar notes to you. Having just said that Moffat's first Doctor introduction is so seamlessly done and, and, and hits all the right notes, I do think that this transition and the companion's role in it was very, very clunky. And to have the very unsubtle and very literal moment, as you described there, Rob, of the ex-doctor ringing up the companion and saying, make sure you tell the audience it's okay that he's older. Uh, <laughs> like, like, it wasn't exactly. even subtle. It was just so unsubtle and so clunky. And I think that Moffat is better than that. And yes. uh, I just think it also kind of betrays a lack of confidence by the production team where they're like, you know what, this is a show that's kind of developed a reputation for the Doctor being a bit bit young and a bit sexy. And uh, Capaldi, well, look, he's a, he's a sexy, mature guy, but he's not he's not that kind of young and sexy. And, uh, mm. oh, gee, we're, we're rolling the dice here and maybe the audience won't like it and maybe we're not confident. And let's literally have Matt Smith ring up and <laughs> face the camera and say, hey, everyone, it's okay to keep watching. Like, it just doesn't feel confident. And so I think that although Clara is there to bridge that gap and be that audience figure to do it, it's done in a very bad way. Uh, yeah. But let me say, I think that by this stage, the companion is so much the co-star of the show that I don't think Clara is better or worse with either of those doctors. I think she works or doesn't work, depending on your view of her, in equal measure with both of them. And in fact, the change of doctor really doesn't change her personality or her role at all. Mm. Yeah, I mean, she does change professions and things like that. But broadly, I I get what you mean. Um, And I'll just say, just to go back to the scene with the telephone, it is clunky, it is horrible. But conceptually, I thought it was actually very clever. 
you know, it was the first time like a past doctor had sort of popped up in a new doctor's story, you know, and sort of was, was narrating parts of the story. I thought that's actually very clever, but what he's saying, no, this is terrible. <laughs> you know, I wish it had been used better, you know, like they'd had, they'd had a conversation or something. Yeah. I think even if it was better scripted, I think it still would have betrayed a lack of confidence in that it really just sort of feels like we're so not confident with our new casting. We've we've got to have the old one here to ease that along. I, I don't know. Could, oh. Yeah, maybe you're right. I mean, it's hypothetical. We don't know. It's 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 certainly born of that. I I don't disagree there. Mm. It is born of that maybe lack of confidence, but just just as a concept that we haven't seen before, I thought it was very interesting. Uh, I mean, you watch Castrovalva, and although you see Tom in in the flashback, you then don't have Tom sort of pop up on a TARDIS view screen or something with with a message for the new Doctor or, or anything like that. You know, it just never happens in Doctor mm. Who. Um, so I, I did like it for that, um, I can say. Okay, fair enough. Mm. Uh, which brings us to the final changeover between Doctors, and once again, it is a companion-less one. That's right, a new production team and a, a Doctor joining without a companion. I think once again they make the right decision, given that it's a new production team, it's a new Doctor, it, it is, as we know, the first female Doctor. I think they do the right thing to have her come out first, but it is interesting that they very quickly build the family up around her, and the more I think about it, the more I look at that first episode and go, they're all almost equal parts in that. It's 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 25% of the episode each. Mm. Gee, now I'm not sure if it works or it doesn't. Rob, Rob, help me out here because I'm I'm doubting my own opinion. <laughs> it doesn't work, Dave, because the Doctor isn't given a big sort of chunk of the action when we've just looked at earlier Doctors. The ones that get the big chunk of the action seem to, to come out better in their opening stories. You know, Davo doesn't get it and, and is a bit soft in Castro Valver, I can say that about him, whereas Smithy gets the lion's share of his story and it's a great story. But it is split between all these companions, and they've given us three companions. I think just Graham and Ryan would have made suitable companions for Jodie, but then people say, oh, you're cutting out Yaz and you're cutting out a woman off the screen, and that's that's not what I'm trying to do by any means. I just think she would work better with two companions, and the logical two are the two that have that relationship, uh, and particularly through Graham's um, wife uh, dying um, I think just uh, sort of starts to solidify them. And I think they're the, they're the more interesting dynamic, particularly as Ryan and Yaz have never, you know, sort of had any sort of relationship, even though I've thought they might have at times. Yeah, look, I think if it was just two companions and Jodie given a bit more in that opening story, I think it could have could have helped quite a bit. I think Yaz is always the spare wheel, isn't she? <laughs> even if they'd stuck with the three companions, and, and look, we've discussed that many times and, and we both agree, if we'd pushed back the introduction of the three companions, or at least maybe a couple of them, to later in the episode, or possibly even episode two, would that have allowed Jodie's Doctor a stronger launch? Yeah, I'll look without doubt. Yeah. Without doubt, you know. Ryan and Yaz might have came together in that episode because they knew each other, and then in the second episode they have an adventure and run into a bus and meet Graham, you know, and then Graham joins the team or, or you know, whatever. Or, you know? or to look at it the other way, if you're going to have to have the Christmas special that was twice upon a time, if you're going to have to have that, could you have introduced the companion in there and then had them bridge over 
to Jodie's Doctor, meaning that we're not learning about any new companion in her first episode. It is just all about her. Yeah, I think you could have done something clever, clever there. Maybe uh, one of them comes across the Doctor just before he regenerates. And Mm. so they're there at the very end and then bridge through, um, you know, maybe Yaz as a policewoman finds him on the street. Who who knows? I'm, I'm kind of thinking about what we said about the Christmas invasion where for the first time there's been a regeneration in the new series and, and, and Rose is asking all the questions that the audience asks. If there'd been a companion who'd met the Doctor an episode earlier and could now ask those questions about how have you changed? You've gone from a man to a woman. How does that work? Is that like all, all those sort of things that are, you know maybe needed to ease the audience in? And, and then, as I say, given Jodie her own introductory episode, maybe that would have been better. Yeah, I think you might be right. And uh, we seem to second-guess a lot about the Chibnall era, don't we? But I, I think it could have been better. Uh, yes, well, let's, let's not dive down that rabbit hole. Mm, um, yeah, let's not. <laughs> but, but look, we have, we have got to the end of our list of Doctors. Any summary or things that stand out for you, Rob? Look, I think I touched on it a, a moment earlier. I think when the Doctors get very strong opening stories... Uh, they can have the companions there to paper over the gaps. I think companions there to help paper over the gaps are a good thing. But I think it can't be at the expense of what the Doctor does. Yeah, I think that that is correct. Uh, I think that they can be a very important tool to introducing us to a new Doctor, particularly when there has been some level of dynamic change in the show. But what really has stuck out for me in this discussion is just how important that dynamic between a companion and a doctor is and how hard it is to make it work for a different doctor and sometimes it works by luck sometimes it really doesn't work and sometimes like sarah jane smith you almost have to redesign the companion to make it work really really well Mm. yep agree on all of that it's sometimes this stuff works and sometimes it just doesn't dave that is true sometimes as I said, it's just more about dumb luck than yeah. any any planning or any intentions could have had. Yeah, completely agree. So that's our chat. But before we tell you what we're doing next month, we have some messages. We do. We have three this month. I think you're going to lead us off with the first one that we got on Twitter, Dave. I have. So one from Ian Key, who comes in via Twitter. And Ian says, Hi, guys. Hope you're well down there. During lockdown, I've started doing a blog. Initially for things I've written over the years. I've started doing new Who stuff, though, interviews and such. I thought you'd be interested in this one. Happy for you to include in your show notes, etc., if you think it's worthy. And there's a link there, inkey69s at blogspot.com, but we will put that, put that up via various bits of social media. So uh, thank you very much for writing in, Ian. Yeah, I retweeted him at the time, uh, but I said we'd put it on the show as well. Do do give it a listen. He's got a Toby Haydock interview there, for example. It's very oh, interesting. Nice, nice. Yeah, yeah, it's good stuff. Uh, this one came in via Facebook uh, Messenger. It's from Blue Box Bill McCann the Third. Hello, Bill. He says, Rob, I'm with you on the Doctor Who lockdown, Doctors Assemble. I first heard about it during your podcast on Terry Nation. I was on my daily walk, so I switched over to YouTube and gave it a listen. And I've got to stop here, Dave. He switched us off and went to YouTube. <laughs> it was that when was that? That was in our news segment. Bill, what are you doing? That was only the start of the episode. Hopefully he came back. <laughs> Bill goes on. Honestly, Doctor's Assemble is just far too clever for its own good. A comedy of cliches. The only laugh I got out of it was the hashtag joke. 
Having so many voices talking at once, way too many times, did nothing to advance the plot, especially when some of those voices were off the mark, as you correctly pointed out. Numerous times I had no idea who was supposed to be speaking. To give it a meh rating is a stretch. Looking forward to your next podcast from Blue Box, Bill McCann Third. Thank you so much, Bill. Thank you, Bill. And our final one is from Millie McKenzie, who came in via Facebook. And she had this to say. Funny, I'm exactly the person you described at the end. She's referring here to our Terry Nation podcast. Mm. I found all your discussions completely new to me. I came to Terry Nation episodes with absolutely no baggage. A Doctor Who fan since only 2014. I watched all the classics without any knowledge of the politics of each year of the eras and watched them just for the stories. I just love the Daleks whenever they appear, and The Keys of Marinus is my favourite first Doctor story. And that's from Millie McKenzie. So look, thank you for coming in with that. And I think that does uh, help validate some of the, the, the points that I was making, that people who don't come with a, a preconceived notion of Terry Nation can just enjoy the stories. And while, while we're on that topic, just thank you to everybody who's written in with... Uh, comments on our Terry Nation episode. We've we've had more, I think, than we normally get, and some you know really interesting discussions about the points we raised. Oh, absolutely. I I think it's no no stretch to say we have a lot of classic fans in our listenership, uh, in general. But also when people have had uh, not not enough, but they've seen a new season of of the show and and they want to just get away and go back to the the older sort of stuff. It's it came at a good time, I think, and that's why we did a. A classic sort of episode because people are just looking for something a bit different than uh, than new who at the moment absolutely but as always if you want to join our discussion please do write to us via facebook email whatever it's all at the end of the show now next month dave yes yeah, so next month we've decided that it's been almost a year since we did our deep dive into an individual story and in that case it was the keeper of Traken. so mm. it's time to dive into one story again really deep going into one story we don't do this often and we thought we did a classic last time so we'll do a new who story this time and once again we're going to put up some options and let our audience vote over the next week or so over which one it's going to be so rob we're going to put forward two nominations each for the listeners to vote on what are yours all right dave i'm going to go with something a bit strange given i'm not an amy pond fan i am going to toss up for my two amy's choice Mm -hmm. and the girl who waited interesting okay um so i haven't matched any of yours so there will be four choices there and again listeners um i encourage you to vote not on what you think is the best story but the one that will be the most interesting discussion and my two nominations are the long game and the idiot's Mm -hmm. lantern wow so four very different stories there and i think slightly more out of the box i think we've both tried to go slightly uh less you know expected there so there it is, listeners. It's all up to you. We'll put it out there on Facebook. We'll put it up on Twitter. We'll have some polls. Choose which story you'd like Dave and I to do a deep dive into uh, from the world of New Who. I'm I'm really curious as to which one gets picked because to me, these are four great stories. You might not be as impressed with my picks, Dave. I don't know. But to me, I'll do uh, all I four I will happily. do three of the four very happily and the other I haven't watched in a very long time. And so I'm, it, it could be a surprise to me interesting vote early vote often that's what they say that's what they say um before we go rob just a quick plug i want to make and that is for friend of the podcast and colleague from the 
goodies podcast and 42 Doomsday, and that's Rob, the other Rob, whose latest book in the Candy Jar Lethbridge-Stewart series has just been released. My copy has been ordered, and he's somewhere between the United Kingdom and here. Uh, His book is called I, Alistair, and I believe it is set in either the Inferno universe, pre-Inferno, or something very analogous to that, and deals with sort of, yeah, fascist fascist brigadier before he became the brigade leader so that's really intrigued me and even if robert wasn't a friend i'd be uh, getting on that one so i alistair from candy jar if you're interested have a look yeah rob popped that up on twitter just before we started recording actually and i retweeted it and said you know well well done you know bloody well done yeah it's just fantastic that he's you know writing these books i think it's great that candy jar does this lethbridge stewart range you know i think that's remarkable too i i think they're probably kicking more goals with that than the uh what the new series adventures have become with bbc books i don't know if they've even released any in the last you know 18 months uh no i don't know either sorry (laughs) (laughs) so yeah look well well done to rob for sure so that's all i've got for the month rob so audience i hope you've enjoyed our discussion there about companions as always write to us if you've got ideas you agree you disagree and don't forget to vote for our topic next month but until then i've been dave and i've been rob and we'll speak again soon bye-bye bye you've been listening to the doctor who show the podcast where too much doctor who is barely enough subscribe to us on itunes or listen through the website at www.thedwshow.net Write to us at hello at thedwshow.net or send us a quickie on Twitter at thedwshow. Facebook.com forward slash thedwshow is also a good place to find us if you're so inclined. Our version of the Doctor Who theme arranged by George Locke. Look him up on YouTube, folks. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Doctor Who, all names and sounds, and any other related items are trademarks and or copyrights of the BBC. All other trademarks and trade names are properties of their respective owners. The official Doctor Who website can be found at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash Doctor Who.